Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ, with a message entitled, Keeping Your Eyes on the Prize. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Almost everyone I know has some kind of discipline in his or her life. You know, perhaps for you, it's the trade that you learned or the degree that you hold. You know, if you have a job, you're required not only to show up at the right time, you're required to perform certain tasks that meet up to certain standards. And if you're raising kids, you know all about discipline around mealtimes to chores, to getting your kids to attend to their homework, to discipling your kids in the scripture, to observing proper bedtimes. Well, the list of disciplines is actually quite a large one. And when it comes to furthering our own spiritual lives, we do well to remember that there are what many Christian leaders have called the disciplines of grace. And the reason they say that is because they want to make it clear that disciplines don't actually earn us anything. Rather, God has chosen to pour out grace through the disciplines. I mean, they include things like attending to prayer and to worship, Bible reading and study, regular church attendance, giving ourselves to ministry and service. I mean, we all know that these things don't earn grace, but they are a means through which God's grace can flow if in doing these things we focus our eyes on Christ. But no one who has a discipline does so for the sake of the discipline. See, I mean to say that discipline is not the goal. I mean, in your job, your goal in your work should be that your work brings glory to God and that it brings betterment to the lives of others. You see what I'm saying? The work is not an end in and of itself. It is the means whereby the end is achieved. Now, I know, I know. There are more goals to your work, things like taking care of your family and also earning more than you need so that you have something that you can give for the glory of God and the betterment of others. I mean, these are reasons you endure the discipline of work. You know, and that's not to say that discipline can't be a joy, only to say that whatever joy or pain or restriction the discipline puts on you, you will endure it if it leads you to something that's far greater. Now, we've been discussing Christian freedom from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11. And what started somewhat innocently as a matter of whether Corinthian Christians should be allowed to eat meat that had been dedicated to an idol has, in Paul's mind, taken him to a level that I'm sure most of the believers in Corinth would never have imagined. They thought the issue was whether they were free to eat temple meat. They couldn't see beyond the immediate issue. And if I might, can you see that so many of us today, when we talk about what we are free to do as believers, can't see beyond the immediate issue. Can I or can't I? We're often blind to what's really at stake, and that really is a shame. And Paul, in asking them to consider their freedom, invites them to think well beyond the issue of meat sacrifice to idols to consider what the end game is all about. What is it that you want, he asks. And then to illustrate that, he speaks of matters in his life in which he has the freedom, or should I say, he has rights. He has the right to demand a salary for his work as an apostle. He has the right to maintain his own culture and not to adopt the cultures of the people he's trying to reach. He has the freedom to do what he wants, but in both of these cases, he has freely chosen not to make use of his rights. And why? Because Paul is able to see beyond the immediate issue 
to the greater goal, to the winning men and women to faith in Christ. Paul asks, if I make choice X over choice Y, how will that impact the advancement of the gospel? And so in order to press this matter forward in a way the Corinthians would never forget, he uses an illustration that he's hoping the Corinthians can all identify with. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, in the ancient world, there were two very important sporting events. I mean, the most important was the Olympic Games, and the second, not far behind, were the Isthmian Games. Every second year, just 15 kilometers out of Corinth, held in the springtime, the famous Isthmian Games attracted athletes from many parts of the world. We do know that Paul was in Corinth from the years 80, 50 to 52, and therefore, he was there when the Isthmian Games were held in the spring of the year 80, 51. It seems quite likely to me that he actually saw some of these games and that what he writes, he not only writes to people in a city that were very familiar with the games, but he also writes from someone who had become well-versed in what was happening at these games. The games would have included foot races and wrestling and boxing and throwing the discus and the javelin, the long jump and the chariot race. Now, as an aside, I think it interesting that poetry reading and singing were also a part of what was done there, although the excitement of competitive poetry reading, well, that escapes me. Perhaps, you know, you had to be there to get into that. Well, some Bible teachers think that since Paul was a tent maker, he no doubt would have prospered during these games. Since there were no permanent accommodations for the fans that would come to watch or even for the, for the athletes who competed, the sale of tents and the fixing of tents would have kept any tent maker very busy during that time. So when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he's using an illustration that would have been very familiar to everyone reading his letter, but he himself would have had a very close look at what was going on. And it seems that what he saw had made an impression upon Paul, and he believed that the games were a marvelous illustration of what he was trying to communicate. Now, you'll notice that in verse 24, Paul mentions that only one gets the prize. See, unlike our modern-day Olympics, we hand out the gold and the silver and the bronze, but in the ancient world, there was actually only one prize, kind of like the gold. You either won or you lost. I mean, that's how the Greeks thought about it. Now, since that was the case, Paul's conclusion is rather obvious. When in verse 24, he says, so run that you may obtain it, everyone in Corinth knew exactly what he was getting at. See, since the athletes at Isthmus recognized how great the competition was so that in their preparation, their training, and their exertion on race day, all knew that this was an all or nothing event. You're either that one person who won or you joined all of the others who were losers. You know, in our world, we sometimes talk about having nothing left on the table, meaning we use up all of our resources and all of our energy, leaving nothing left over. Now, of course, Paul did not think that Christians are racing against each other and that only one Christian ever receives the prize. Rather, he is saying that the effort required of Christians is no less than the man or woman who won at the Isthmian Games from the starting discipline of training 
to the final exertion on that game day. See, in the same way, in your Christian life, leave nothing left on the table. Now, the most obvious question is this. What is it that Paul was referring to? When he speaks about receiving the prize, is he speaking about salvation or is he speaking about something else? I mean, he must have had something very specific in mind, and we, if we're not clear about it, will have no idea of what he's communicating. So let's begin by acknowledging that there are times in the writings of Paul when the idea of a reward refers directly to our salvation. For instance, in Philippians 3.14, he says he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in that passage, he tells of those who have not watched their spiritual walk and who end in destruction rather than the glory of heaven. So let's be clear. Eternal life in heaven is indeed the prize of all who place their hope in Christ. But I think that the context of our passage, Paul does not have the idea of salvation in mind. He rather has in mind rewards that some believers will receive when they get to heaven. And so, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that in the final day, Christ will test the quality of each believer's work. Some are going to get to heaven, but they're going to have no rewards. In fact, everything that they've ever done on this earth is going to be burned up. But others are going to find that when they get to heaven, their works remain and they endure. And according to 1 Corinthians 3.14, they will receive their reward. And furthermore, just earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul speaks of a reward that he receives, and you'll remember that if you've been listening to this series, that he receives in the preaching of the gospel when he preaches it free of charge. So it is clear he means a reward believers receive in heaven. And here's the question. Why should believers long for a reward in heaven? I've spoken to more than one believer who said, I just can't get my idea of what this reward actually means. So when we come back, we're going to see exactly why we should be striving for a reward. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry update email or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there. I have sometimes heard Christians deeply perplexed about the idea of various rewards being handed out in heaven. And some will ask, but if some receive no rewards and others receive great rewards in heaven, won't those of us who have no rewards be deeply disappointed? And doesn't the Bible say that there will be no unhappiness in heaven? Well, I think the answer to that's rather simple. 
One of the reasons so many of us are dissatisfied in life is because, quite frankly, we're envious of others. You know, if everyone lived in a house that was smaller than yours and drove a car that was worse than yours and had so much less than you have in every single area, high sense that most of us, the unhappiness of never having enough would simply melt away. You see, it's not how much you have that affects our happiness. It's how much we have in relation to others. So you might have been very happy to have three weeks of vacation a year until you hear that there's someone who gets two months of vacation a year and suddenly what you have seems like a pittance and dissatisfaction reigns in your heart. See, one of the things that I'm passionately looking forward to in heaven is that all the lower attitudes are forever banished. Those of us who have no rewards in heaven Well, we're going to look on those who are greatly rewarded, and we're going to be filled with joy. Those people and their honor of our Savior, the green monster of pride and greed is going to be gone. Don't you see that? Okay, I've dealt with that, but what kinds of rewards are we talking about? I wonder if you've ever noticed how often Jesus spoke about rewards. For example, in Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward, he says, is great in heaven. But what kinds of reward does Jesus have in mind? He does give us hints in many places. For instance, in Luke 19, in the telling of the parable of the ten minas, verse 17 says, Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, without pushing this matter too far, it does seem to me that since believers are called upon to rule and reign with Christ, there are levels of authority that are granted to those who have been faithful. Christ rewards our faithfulness indeed. The Bible does seem to make clear that there is a judgment of degrees of faithfulness. That's exactly what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And since Paul speaks that way, earlier on in 1 Corinthians and then in chapter 9, he speaks of the reward he will receive because of refusing a salary, while clearly Paul has in mind a reward that is assigned to believers individually on the day of judgment. Now, and this is key. Everywhere in the New Testament, rewards are promised as motivation for faithfulness. See, are you being persecuted for faithfulness to Christ? Well, take heart. God knows and will reward you. Carry on. Don't lose heart. That's the idea. So back to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Let's focus now on verse 25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And notice both the similarities and the dissimilarities with the athletic world. Both Christians and athletes, if you are to receive a prize, must exercise self-control in all things. See, I want you to notice the word athlete in our translation. Other translations simply translate that word athlete as everyone. Well, the Greek word is the word agonizomai, a word from which we get in English the verb to agonize. See, I think it's a fitting way to describe a winning athlete. It's one who agonizes. That's because the training regimen is lengthy and daily with arduous drills in which he or she will struggle with the protestations of their body. And then, of course, there's the diet that must be observed and the orders of your trainer, which must be obeyed. 
And of course, finally, the race itself in which the body just pleads for mercy, but the athlete will determine he will not listen to the body, but sacrifice the body for the prize. And Paul says, in reality, that's exactly how the Christian life works. There are thousands of decisions where self-control is demanded of us. He means by that that we put aside anything that will hinder the advancement of the gospel and that we grasp a hold of everything that will advance the gospel. Let me suggest an example. If you give sacrificially for gospel advancement, you have used your freedom to dispose your money in a way that requires, yeah, discipline. Here's another example. If you pay more for your meat than the temple meat so that no believer is scandalized, you've exercised discipline. Here's another example. If you learn the skill of sharing the gospel wherever there's an opportunity, being trained in personal witnessing, you'll most likely lead people to Christ. The gospel advances. Now, perhaps if you think about it right now, you have a decision to make that will impact gospel advancement. And so that's the similarity between athletes and Christians. In both cases, it will mean discipline, saying yes to some things and saying no to others. Now, here's the dissimilarity. Athletes, as Paul says in verse 25, run for a perishable wreath. Now, in the Isthmian Games, the wreath was a pine wreath. But, of course, they were running for more than that. Just like in our day, winning athletes became heroes, household names, and they instantly became famous. But the point is the same. Like the wreath that was perishing, fame and status, well, they perish as well. There comes a day when athletes are forgotten. Fame is short-lived. But Paul says, we believers have a reward that's never forgotten. Peter called that reward one that never fades away. Now to verse 26. Paul says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, the disciplines that I learn, the times in which I say no to things that I could freely have had, the times in which I am called upon to exercise restraint, and to withhold certain things from myself. When I do that, Paul says, it's not without a goal. And that's the point. Christians don't deny themselves and pick up the cross and follow Jesus because they think it's so great to deny themselves. They're like the person saving for retirement. No one puts money away for retirement just because they want to deny themselves of that money today. No, they do it because of a reward in the end of the day. Now to verse 27. Paul says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I need to point out that this text has been abused. It is sometimes used as a proof text to those who indulge in a practice called self-flagellation. Now, this was a widespread practice in the Middle Ages in which someone would take a whip and whip it over their backs until they were bloody. Many thought this practice was a practice of penance, and others saw it as a way of demonstrating that they could discipline their body. But the Bible never approves of this kind of a practice. But the Bible does approve of other practices such as, well, fasting. See, when Christians fast, the body will move into full revolt, demanding that we feed it. You know, fasting can be a discipline that allows one to acquire discipline over our body. The will and obedience to the Lord become of greater importance than the demands of the flesh. And once the flesh is being tamed, it soon begins to yield to the dictates of the will. See, every athlete knows that. And it's also important that Christians know that as well. 
See, our bodies are not in charge, nor are the desires of our lower nature. Paul's willingness to suffer for the gospel are the result of his rigid discipline over the desires of his body. And all of that brings us back to where we started when we talked about disciplines. Whether it's the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and of worship, regular church attendance, faithful giving, involving ourselves in service in which we might show up to teach a group of boys or girls on a a Wednesday night when our bodies feel tired from a long day of work. I mean, disciplines over the body, whatever they may be, yield great fruit and an eternal reward for believers. That's the point of what we're reading. But we might object. Am I not free? And is it not true that I don't have to do these things? Well, yes, it is true. But what if we asked a different set of questions? What if we asked, how might I gain true freedom? I mean, the kind of freedom where my flesh is not dictating my actions. Rather, my actions are dictated by the will of God and the opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. May God give us insight into these things. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone listening even now. O Lord God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, make these truths real to us so that we might love your gospel more than we love our own personal self-indulgence. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. John, I think, you know, your message really touches a point uh, which all of us have sort of struggled with, this whole idea of reward and the motivation for reward. And is it personal motivation? Like, where does it all come from? Yeah, I do think, I mean, Jesus tells us, great will be your reward if you do, right? So it seems to me that what Jesus has in mind is a way of encouraging believers to continue to be faithful. But I need to say a little bit more about the kind of rewards that we're looking forward to. I mean, I think we're not looking for simply, you know, a way of just enriching ourselves. I mean, Jesus says, if we're faithful in little, we'll be put in charge over much. Anyone who's faithful in little is also faithful in much. So I think what we are looking forward to is being being able to rule over all the works of God's hands in such a way that demonstrates our love for him. And so the greater our faithfulness here, even in little things, the greater will he put us in charge in the life to come. I think surely some of the rewards that we read about in the New Testament are exactly of that order. There are greater opportunities for us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord in all that we do. That's a great word. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful, and it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.